Our reading this morning is from uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, starting at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he would dismiss the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran, out, ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick, uh, sick people of their, on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm glad to see everybody this morning. Um, Glad you can be here. It's been uh, another kind of crazy week. Uh, So much going on. this week, in many ways, good things, but also heartbreaking things, too, uh, have come to light. And um, So, as always, we need to go to God's Word to hear what He has to say, uh, to teach us about what it means to draw near to Him, what it means to be a community that's gathered around uh, His Word and that has compassion for our city. So, uh, with all that, let's go in prayer. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning. We pray that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see. Help us this morning to hear the good news of Jesus, to be reminded of all that he has done for us, to be reminded of your great fatherly love, to be reminded of the power of the Spirit that's at work in us. And most of all, Lord, we pray that we would be drawn in, drawn that you, because you sent your Son to draw near to us, would draw us close to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what are you afraid of? Kind of a big question. Some of us know immediately what we're afraid of. It's right on the front, at the front of our minds. Uh, this morning, it's right there. When we're kids, we're able to be, maybe speak to this more clearly. A lot of us, though, as we get older, uh, have a harder time admitting what we're afraid of. We, use, we talk about what we're stressed about. We talk about uh, the different challenges we face. We don't talk a lot about what we are afraid of. But even if you can't think of what it is, don't worry, 2020's got your back. Because there's a pandemic that you can worry about. Some mysterious, highly contagious, but doesn't always seem to be obvious in, in every patient kind of disease that's out there just for you to worry about. Uh, maybe it's an economy that's 
that's wildly swinging back and forth. Nobody knows what the rules are in a pandemic when you've closed down a country uh, for a while and you're trying to recover from that and you're still not sure if it's the right time to open. Who knows? Maybe, maybe it's overt racism that we see rising up again. Maybe it is, uh, maybe it is the difficulty and the fear of owning our indifference to it. Maybe it's murder hornets. Do you remember murder hornets? Remember when we were concerned about that? That felt like it was, feels like it was three years ago. It was like three weeks ago. We were all worried about murder hornets. And now, the, now we've already forgotten about that. Maybe, it's that. maybe it's the fact that we are afraid of so many things, but we don't actually use that term that we're so anxious. You know, anxiety is growing in the United States. It is now the number one mental health issue on college campuses, uh, beating out the longtime champion, depression. Uh, anxiety has now taken the lead. The National Institute of Health uh, now reports that one in three adolescents, that is people... 13 to 18, uh, one in three experience some kind of anxiety disorder. Um, we're anxious people. We're afraid of a lot of different things. So what does God have to say about that? What does Jesus offer to those that are afraid? He offers divine connection. He offers divine reliance. And he offers divine provision. Divine connection, divine reliance, and divine provision. Jesus offers divine connection. You can see this as, as the passage begins. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Well, actually, it was more than 5,000. That, that was just the heads of household that were counted. So it could have been perhaps even up to five times that many but, uh, but this huge crowd that Jesus has just fed. And then he sends his disciples away, and he goes up on a mountain to pray. It's kind of a funny thing for Jesus to do. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, I don't know if it strikes you as odd, but there are moments along the way in all of the Gospels where we're told that Jesus goes to pray. That, and they are they're kind of scattered throughout the Gospels, but they are almost always notable. In particular, in the Gospel of Mark, we're told that he goes to pray in chapter 1, when he is starting his ministry uh, and, about to, and, and calling the disciples, he goes to pray in chapter 1, verse 35. We're told he prays here. And then we're told in chapter 14, verse 35, that Jesus prays right before he's arrested the beginning of the passion, the beginning of uh, the end, as it were, for Jesus, and he's praying. That, in other words, prayer is often notable, and I'm sure that Jesus was praying all throughout his life, all, you know, every day I'm sure that Jesus was praying, but it's always notable when the text tells us that. It ought to catch our eye, it ought to draw our attention to the it ought to be a hint that Jesus is about to do something. He's preparing for something significant. But don't let, let's not let this pass us by. Jesus is praying. That, that, should, that should mean something. It, mu it must be true, of course, that, uh, that Jesus isn't praying 
for divine knowledge. It doesn't mean he's praying for divine power. He possesses all those things. Prayer must be about something different. See, Jesus is divine, right? So why does he pray? And if our idea about prayer is that we are primarily coming to God to ask for things, then Jesus' prayer challenges that perspective. It it, it teaches us that uh, maybe prayer is something a little different than we think it is. Now, it is, of course, true that you can, that you should ask God for things. But that maybe that's not the heart of prayer. That maybe that's not the primary thing. And if you've, of course, grown up in the church, or even if you're, you have some passing familiarity with prayer in the church and how it's practiced, you know that there are other aspects of it. There's praise to God. There's thanksgiving. There's confession. We've already kind of done all of those different things in some format or another in this service. Uh, there are other ways of praying. And if we think that the primary goal is to get something from God, then you will, we will misunderstand all of those other aspects of prayer as being hmm, a way of putting on a show for God. Trying to sort of butter him up before the big ask, right? Trying to convince God that, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're with you, right? So why don't you get with us? Give us the things we want. And uh, it's probably true that many Christians have bought into that misunderstanding. I, I won't deny that one bit. Uh, I think that's a temptation we all face. Yet Jesus' prayers show us that, that prayer is about something different. That the heart of prayer is not about what you get out of God, but it's about going to God. It is about communing with God. Prayer is a communicative act, which sounds kind of clinical, but it's a way of saying it's about sharing something in common with Him. That's, the, of course, the Latin root of all those words, communing, communicating. Maybe to put it a slightly different way, it's about quality time. I mean, that, that sounds pretty pedestrian, but I think that that is essentially it, right? Jesus wants to be with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus wants to spend time with them. It's something so basic about relationships, yet so important, isn't it? Quality time. It's the kind of thing that the irony, of course, of a pandemic is we've all been shut up in our houses together uh, as families. And I know that some of us are not with families. And um, that's difficult. But even those who, but those who are with their family know there's a difference between spending time with people and actually spending quality time with people. That the, the quantity of it could be immense, but that doesn't make it quality. We know this because this is what makes uh, a trip with friends so great, right? Is that time to actually talk about what is going on in your lives, to have a shared experience together. This is why couples need date nights, right? (laughs) It's so they can actually spend time looking each other in the eye. This is why it's so special when you're a kid to have, you know, some time just with dad or just with mom. Uh, Because we need quality time, right? We need to commune to be more theological about it, with those we love. And that's what prayer is. 
That is the heart of prayer, is about communing with God. That's why praise and thanksgiving are the beginning of prayer. Because they're about celebrating and being excited about the one that you're spending time with. That's why confession isn't about earning God's forgiveness, but coming clean and being reconciled with Him. That's why you can still ask for things, but they get put into a relational perspective. They get put into perspective knowing that what we're doing here is meeting God to be with Him. This is why, and that's why Calvin could say this about prayer. He says, we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel. It's in prayer that we actually dig up the treasures of being a Christian. Because it's in prayer that we're meeting God, that, that we're coming to Him spiritually, that we're, being, that we're communing with Him. That's why little or no, perhaps, spiritual growth can happen without prayer. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who's written lots of books, says this. He says, prayer is the language of the Trinity. Intimate, personal language. When we pray, we embrace the language of Jesus as our language. Nothing happens in this Christian life impersonally, according to a blueprint, automatically by code. Everything is personal. In other words, in prayer, we are learning the language that God has even within his own life as Father, Son, and Spirit. So as we think about our fears, the question is, are you taking your fears to God in prayer? Are you in coming to him? Are you drawing near to him? Are you taking the time to say to him what's really on your heart? To reflect on who he is and to think about what it means to, that he is in control. And yet, you've still got these things going on in your life that are difficult. How much do we miss out when we miss prayer? You know, the Bible doesn't set a specific time. You need to clock 15 minutes in prayer every day. It never tells you that. Because the way that the Bible views prayer is not as a duty that you must check off, but as a privilege of a child to the Father. And so often we miss out on that privilege. Forgetting that it is such a profound thing to be in God's presence. It is, you might say, the very heart of the gospel. That we can be with God. So I, I encourage all of us to be thinking about how much we're in prayer. I don't know anybody that is even somewhat mature in the faith that would say they pray enough. I, I think if you're content with how much you're praying, you probably are missing the boat. And I don't mean that to say that you should be miserable about it. I mean that to say it's such a privilege, right? Like, why do, we, why do we want to be there? We should want to be in God's presence more and more. But we all do struggle with this. And I will give you a few practical recommendations. Um, 
if you want to be in prayer more, then you need to reflect, you need to begin your prayers reflecting on God's good, loving, gracious, fatherly love for you. It is such a chore so often because we fundamentally begin in the wrong place. We begin by thinking of God as some kind of bureaucrat that's dispensing different requests. But instead, he's a loving father. And if we don't tune our hearts to that, to begin with, of course it will be a chore. And that is the place to start, is reflecting on that. Reflecting back to him, with him, about what his character is. The second thing is to think less about to worry less about how long your prayers are and to think more think about praying more throughout the day in other words let's say you do have as a goal to pray 15 minutes a day i don't know yours you you may be nowhere near that or you may think that's pretty lame but whatever you think about about it take take just 15 minutes as a guidepost right say you want to pray 15 minutes a day it will be a marathon especially if you haven't been consistent in prayer, to try to do that in one sitting. And in fact, our goal is to be in communion with God throughout the day. So it's much easier in one sense and much better in terms of thinking in terms of quality time with God to think less about how do I get 15 minutes in the morning or the evening, whenever it is, in one big chunk. Instead, how do I get five minutes in the morning? five minutes sometime in the middle of the day, five minutes in the evening. Think about how, how it is that you can be communicating with God throughout the day rather than having one big, long download session with him, you know, like you have some kind of meeting with God to, to lay out what your priorities are and, you know, hope to hear what his are. Uh, think more in terms of how do I spread this throughout the day. And the third thing is to use the Lord's Prayer as a guide to give to have the right priorities. This is why we repeat the Lord's Prayer so often. It's not just that it's some good recommendation from Jesus. Uh, It is generic. But that is why it's so helpful, because it teaches us to think about our own priorities and to reprioritize them according to how God sees the world. And in the context of our own fears, it puts them in their place. There is a place to bring your fears to God. There is a place to bring all your requests to God. There, that's there. Yet, if that's the, it, it keeps them from consuming all of that time. It keeps it from becoming the only thing that we ever have to say. Instead, it teaches us to dig up all of those different benefits and blessings of the gospel. So Jesus shows us the way towards divine connection. But divine connection, of course, comes by divine reliance. And as we get into verses, uh, let's see, as we get, lost my place here, into uh, verses 48, 49, we start to see what Jesus was was preparing himself for, what his prayer was getting his mind focused for. And it was another spectacular display of his own divine identity. 
We've already seen one story about the disciples out in the, on the Sea of Galilee in a storm. This is back in, near the end of chapter 4. And there Jesus was in the boat with them, right? And he calmed the storm. Here, Jesus is watching from the shore as the disciples are trying to make headway. Now, it's not perhaps a giant storm, but it's certainly windy, right? And what should have been a couple hours trip to get across the Sea of Galilee is taking all night. By the time Jesus walks out, we're told it's the fourth watch. Now, the fourth watch was from about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So literally, it's taking all night for them to try to beat against the wind to get, a, to, get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And this passage is, is another one that, just like last week, is rich with all kinds of Old Testament allusions, all kinds of uh, connections to, to, uh, to psalms and stories from the Old Testament. It's, it's, you can see it first in just the miracle itself that Jesus is walking on water. We saw before in that other story about a storm uh, that Jesus was kind of was doing the sort of thing only God could do in that he was commanding the storm and the sea. But there's also a bunch of passages that describe the, the God of the Old Testament as walking on water or making his path through the water. And just one illustration of this is Psalm 77, verse 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footsteps were unseen. This idea that God, that God sort of walks over the chaos of it all that makes a path through that is all over the Old Testament. And then there's something fascinating, right? We are told that Jesus goes out to them, and yet when he gets there, This is the end of verse 48. He meant to pass them by. And that little little verb, pass by, is really interesting. Paraxomai, it is a very common Greek word. it, it, It doesn't mean anything technical. It just means passing by. But what's fascinating is in the context of Jesus doing the sort of thing that only God could do, it suggests at least two other occasions in the Old Testament. Uh, Two really fascinating occasions. Two of the biggest moments where God reveals who he is. So one of them is in Exodus 33 and 34. Now, Exodus 32 is the story of the golden calf. Moses had been up on the mountain for 40 days. The people get tired of it. They're waiting for him, and as he's coming down, God says, oh boy, now they've made a golden calf. And, uh, and there's, there's all kinds of craziness that ensues from that. I'm not going to get into all that story. But near the end of that, God says, okay, go to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. My presence is not going to go with you. And Moses intercedes on the people's behalf before God, And God relents, and he says, okay, I will. I will go with you. And Moses asks him this question. Well, it's not actually an ask. He says to God, show me your glory. And this is at the end of chapter 33. And God says, I can't show you my face. You can't stand the full 
glory of my face. You can't, you can't stand before that kind of intensity. You won't make it. Instead, what I'll do, and this is what he does in chapter 34, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. And as I go by, I'll proclaim my name, and I'll let you see my back. I'll, I'll let you catch a glimpse of it. You can't stand the full thing. You can't stand the full blast of my glory, but you can take, take a little glimpse of it. And so, Moses goes up on the mountain, God puts him in the cleft, and as he passes by, and it's the same word, in the Greek Old Testament, it's the same word. As he passes by, Moses catches a glimpse of his glory. And the second story is intimately related to that. It's when Elijah, the prophet, so this is much later in Old Testament history, after there are kings over Israel, Elijah, the prophet, has challenged the, the prophets of Baal, some false god, and won, and it's been this big spectacular victory, but the king, King Ahab, and his wife Jezebel are furious. They're, they're looking to kill him. Elijah doesn't really think there's anybody left in, in Israel that worships God. And in his despair, he runs into the desert. And he goes to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. So he goes back to the same place Moses was. And God says, go up the mountain and I'll pass you by. And you might know the story. A storm passes by and God's not in the storm. An earthquake passes by, he's not in the earthquake. A fi- the fire passes by, some kind of blaze across the mountain passes by. God's not in that. But when he hears a small voice, he pulls up his hood because God is passing by. Again, that, that word passing by, this is all an image, right? That what Jesus is doing is revealing his ide- divine identity. And if that's not enough, when in, uh, let's see, what is it? Verse 50, when the disciples catch a glimpse of Jesus walking on water, they start freaking out. They think he's a ghost. They don't know what to make of him. Jesus says, take heart. It is I. The more literal translation in the Greek is, take heart, I am. It's the divine name. In other words, Jesus is showing off his divine power. And what we've had is is a series of sort of revelations of this in Mark up to this point. And this might be the biggest one yet. Don't you understand who I am? He's showing them his divine identity, and he gets in the boat, and he quiets the storm. And they don't know what to make of it. You know, the reality is they don't really understand Verse 52 actually points us back to the previous story about the, the feeding of the 5,000. said so they didn't understand that because their hearts were hardened. They're missing that God is the one that they need to rely on. That he is the one who is showing up. He, Jesus is signaling over and over and over again, 
his divine presence. And, is, and he's showing that he is reliable. He doesn't leave them out there in the boat, beating against the wind. Certainly not forever. He sees them. He will provide. And we need to remember that we are those who rely on God above everything else. It's true in some generic sense, right? As Paul says, it's in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, it's true, of course, in that generic sense. But it is particularly pointed for the Christian. Because we know what Jesus will do. We know the, the lengths to which Jesus will go. We realize that he is the one who has entered the storm. The biggest storm, right? Not just the physical storm but the realities of sin and evil, and overcome them. He makes the, he's made that sea, that storm, his pathway. He has made the wind and the rain his shroud. He has taken the very worst, the most horrific of this life, and made it a means to accomplishing all that he intended. Evil as it was, he turned it to good. And there is a profound mystery here as we think about what it means to rely on God. That Christians have always had a bit of a strange idea of what it means to live the good life. And this week I was going back and uh, reading some of Dr. King's speeches and, and writings and thinking a little bit more about that, right? And the night before he was, he was shot, the night before he was assassinated, in his mountaintop speech, he got to the end of it, and he said, some, he said this, Like anybody, I'd like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And the powerful thing of, about Dr. King, powerful thing about particularly the branch of the civil rights movement that he led, was their commitment to nonviolence, their commitment to a version of the good life that wasn't about being comfortable now, but was about something more profound that lay ahead. And if you want to get more specific to the church, think about the early church. If you want to think about a really uniquely Christian perspective, think about the versions of the good life that the early church told. You know what kind of stories they told? They didn't talk about uh, this rich, these rich guys here and there who converted and became great patrons of the church, although some of that happened. Even when an emperor converted, that was an ancillary story. The stories of the good life that the early church told were stories of martyrdom, were stories of those who had given their life for Jesus. And the assumption, of course, was not that everyone would be a martyr. That's not everybody's calling. But they told stories of the good life that were about giving up your life for him. And think about, there, there's, there's one famous, I mean, there's a bunch of famous ones, but one of the famous ones is the story of uh, Polycarp. Now, you can search this. It's a unique name. Um, Polycarp was a very early leader in the church. 
the Apostle John lived to be very old, and Polycarp was one of his disciples in his old age. And then Polycarp himself lived to be pretty old. And so the story comes from around the 150s, 160s AD. We're not, we don't know exactly the date. But, uh, but Polycarp was on trial uh, in his 80s uh, for leading the church. He was threatened, you know, with being thrown to the wild animals. And then he was threatened with fire. And eventually he was, in fact, uh, burned at the stake. But when they asked him to recant, this is what he said, 86 years have I been God's servant, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And it would be easy for us to say, he's done you no wrong. I mean, like you're standing there about to be burned up. He's saved you. I mean, you're about to die. But Polycarp, of course, had a very different vision of what it meant to have a good life. He, of course, thought about being saved in categories that were much bigger than about having a comfortable life or even about preserving his own life. He was thinking about life and God. He was thinking about relying on a God who was reliable, who would bring him into deep communion, into deep connection. So is your picture of the good life, is my picture of the good life, more about being comfortable, moving, you know, from one success to another, from having as comfortable an existence as I can in maybe ever-increasing steps? Is it about clearing, you know, steering clear of storms in life? I'm not saying you've got to be like Dr. King. I'm not saying you've got to be like Polycarp. I'm not saying you've got to be some great martyr of the church. Most of us probably won't be those things. But we can live in reliance on God because we know he's reliable. And we can look at what it means to have a good life from a very different angle than the world. Because we know all that Jesus has given for us. And we know that he is bringing us into God's presence. And that brings us to the last point about what he provides. You see, he does get in the boat and he stops the storm. He provides for those disciples. And then he gets to the shore, verses 54, 55, and there's more people there bringing out the sick who he heals. And we've talked about this before. Uh, they, they say they just want to touch the fringe of his garment. It's reminiscent of that old lady in chapter 5 who was bleeding for 12 years, who just wanted to touch the fringe of his garment to be healed. It's reminiscent of that. And all of these healings are meant to be symbolic actions to show us that Jesus is the one who's giving life. And where uncleanness should have, where their uncleanness should have made him unclean, instead it works backwards. That where there is death, Jesus brings life. Where there is uncleanness, Jesus gives cleanliness. Jesus is reversing all of these things. And of course, these are all signs that Jesus is undoing the power of sin and death by whatever he touches. Jesus is providing for what is needed. 
This is what reliance looks like in practice, is looking toward Jesus to provide. Do we, does it mean you need to do anything? Yes. You needed to seek him out, to touch the fringe of his garment, right? But this was about what he was providing, not about being obsessed with our own efforts. Efforts are, of course, important. But they only matter if he is providing. And this ought to give us hope in the midst of a pandemic. That we ought to make efforts, but we're looking towards God to provide. This ought to give us hope with economic uncertainty. Of course we need to do things. Maybe we need to look for a job. Maybe we need to look out for others who are struggling financially, but we're looking towards God to provide what is needed. In the context of racial injustice, we're looking towards God to provide, knowing that our own efforts are not going to undo evil by themselves. But God can undo evil. God is the one who gives us hope. God is the one who provides. Maybe there's some peculiar issue in your life that seems insurmountable. And yes, you need to do some things about it. But God is the one who provides. We are banking on his provision by relying on Jesus to bring us to God. See, Eugene Peterson uh, elsewhere points out this. It says, the way to come to, to God is the same way that God comes to us. God comes to us in Jesus and we come to God in Jesus. We're always going back to the gospel to be reminded of his provision so that we can be confident that he is reliable and that our hope is defined by being with him. And that brings us back to where we started. In the midst of all these things, are we in prayer? Are we acting on those who believe, as those who believe that prayer is effective? Are we concerned in the midst of a pandemic for the sick? Are we in prayer? And are we living out that confidence that God is faithful by taking care of those who are in need? Are we concerned about justice? Are we actually praying about it? Or do we spend more time posting on our social media accounts than actually being in prayer and taking action that we have confidence that God answers those prayers? Are we concerned for those who are caught in economic difficulty? Are we bringing them to the Lord in prayer? Are we looking to act in line with our confidence that God is reliable to care for those who are in need? Remember Jesus' word, take heart. I am. Take heart because Jesus has walked through the storm. Take heart because Jesus has begun the work of justice in his own body. Take heart because Jesus has begun the healing that he will give the whole world by his Spirit guaranteed in his resurrection. Take heart because Jesus has brought us to God. Take heart because Jesus promises more than we could ever dreamed of. Take heart because God is with you.
if you are in Christ. So be not afraid. Let's pray. Father, we are very fearful when we're honest. But you have given us everything we need to turn away from fear, to not be controlled by it, to know that you are reliable because you have given us everything in Jesus that we could ever need. Everything is provided by him. So teach us to be more in prayer with you, to dig up those blessings that are there for us, that we might be people of action. Your workmanship, given to good works, knowing that you answer our prayers. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.